A heads up, the following program contains some salty language and references to sex. When I think about my first period, the primary feeling I remember is embarrassment. I was trying to hide the blood, stuffing those big puffy pads into a fanny pack. But for Caitlin McDonough, menstruation always felt like an illness. I got my period at age 12. And I just remember being at my friend's house during sleepovers and just never feeling right. And I'd always get very sick around my period um, and be bed bound. That was really the only thing that would ever help um, was sleep. When she was 15, her pediatrician prescribed birth control pills. But those didn't help the pain, and they gave her mood swings and acne. So Caitlin's mom took her to a specialist. He's actually chief of OBGYN at multiple hospitals, very big hospitals. By this time, she was 17. And the doctor told Caitlin he was 90% sure she had endometriosis. Endometriosis is where tissue similar to the lining of the uterus, but not the lining of the uterus appears in other areas outside of it. That tissue collects in lesions around the pelvis. It sticks to the fallopian tubes, the abdominal wall, the bowel, the bladder, and other structures. Like the lining of the uterus, it responds to sex hormones. As we all know, when you get your period, the endometrium, the uterine lining, breaks down and leaves the body through the vagina. But endometriosis tissue is trapped inside. And like a wound that won't heal, it irritates surrounding tissue and causes pain and inflammation. Many people with endometriosis have periods so bad they have to stay home from work or school. And I know some that have been trying to get on disability. Some women, like Caitlin, also have pain throughout the month. Also on the menu, painful sex and infertility. Endometriosis may be the most common disease that your dad's never heard of. About 1 in 10 women of reproductive age have the disease. That's according to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists. The number could be even higher, but it's hard to know because the only definitive way to diagnose it is through surgery. Caitlin's doctor recommended laparoscopic surgery to remove any endo that she might have. While Caitlin was under, he found endometriosis tissue and destroyed it with heat. But afterwards, she actually felt a lot worse. I had a lot of pain on my left lower quadrant, um, especially with bowel movements. It was excruciating where I would bend over. Um, but when I went to my post-op visit, he just brushed it off and said, it's surgical pain, it'll go away. But it unfortunately never did go away until I had my next surgery with a different surgeon. Over the next 10 years, Caitlin tried more forms of birth control than she can remember and had six pelvic surgeries. She was also diagnosed with other pelvic problems, including an ovarian cyst and a painful bladder disorder. She felt about 50% better after her fourth surgeon removed endometriosis tissue from areas where other doctors hadn't found it, and she got a hysterectomy. But for the past two years, Caitlin's been feeling worse than ever. She's been working with a pain management specialist, getting nerve blocks, doing physical therapy, but the pain relief from those things doesn't last very long. Then last summer, she went to see a new gyno specialist, a reproductive endocrinologist. And that's where she was introduced to Oralissa. 
Or Alyssa, sounds like the name of the girl you invite to the sleepover because she knows how to give blowjobs and can teach everyone else. But it's actually the brand name for the first drug to come to the U.S. market that was developed specifically for endometriosis. Or Alyssa is also known by its scientific name, Elagolix. The medication was approved by the FDA for treating pain associated with endometriosis in July 2018. The lowest dose comes with a list price of about $1,000 a month. Endometriosis is fueled by estrogen, and Elagolix works by lowering estrogen production. Like other drugs that put young women and girls into a menopause-like state, it's controversial. In this episode, I speak with two leading physicians in the field of endometriosis. One doctor thinks Oralissa could be a game-changer. The other, he thinks it's more of a pharmaceutical gimmick and not worth the hefty price tag. This is Lady Parts. I'm Andrea Maraskin, and I believe that to make informed decisions about our health, women have to break taboos against publicly discussing our basic bodily functions and most perplexing symptoms. Lady Parts takes a wide view. Transgender and non-binary people have a seat at this table, too, and yet even cisgender guys who care. We're greater than the sum of our parts, but the sum of our parts is pretty fucking great, too. I can't talk about Oralissa without first mentioning the drug that she's basically replacing the need for, a related medication called Lupron. Lupron hit the market for endometriosis in 1984 and has been prescribed for the disease ever since. Lupron works by sending a signal to the hypothalamus that signals the pituitary gland to tell the ovaries to go into overdrive. In the first week or so, the ovaries excrete lots of estrogen and progesterone. And then, overwhelmed, they shut down, putting the body into temporary menopause. The idea is to shrink endometriosis lesions by depriving them of estrogen and hit pause on the inflammatory process brought on by the menstrual cycle. It will stop your period, temporarily. Side effects of Lupron include hot flashes, mood swings, vaginal dryness, fatigue, short-term memory loss, and breast pain. It can also cause bone density loss and long-time ovarian suppression. The FDA has received over 25,000 complaints about Lupron. Last year, the agency announced it was investigating the drug because of reactions involving musculoskeletal and connective tissue pain. Internet forums for women with endometriosis are littered with Lupron horror stories, and the phrase, Lupron ruined my life, is not uncommon. Research shows that Lupron is about as effective as progestin-based medications for treating endometriosis pain, but with worse side effects. However, those progestins, including progestin-only birth control, can be nasty, too. For some women, including me, being on one of those feels like having PMS all the time. And then there's cases like Caitlin's where birth control just doesn't work. So there's definitely a market for another drug here. Lupron comes in the form of an injection given monthly or once every three months. So while doctors do prescribe low doses of quote-unquote add-back hormones to help with some of the side effects, 
the menopause-like state is not immediately reversible. Oralissa, also manufactured by AbbVie Pharmaceuticals, is taken orally. Get it? Oral? Oralissa? It's not really about blowjobs. So your doctor can adjust the dosage and you can stop at any time if you're not liking the way you feel on it. Also, and this is important, Oralissa partially suppresses the ovaries instead of turning them completely off the way Lupron does. To learn more, I drove down to Yale New Haven Hospital to meet with Dr. Hugh Taylor. He headed up two studies that were key to the FDA's approving Oralissa. You'll hear us use the term dysmenorrhea, that means pain during menstruation. In these studies, dysmenorrhea was understood to mean pelvic pain during the period, whether that's coming from the uterus or coming from endometriosis, so that's how we used it during the interview. You should also know that these studies were sponsored by Abbey Pharmaceuticals, the maker of Oralissa and Lupron. And Dr. Taylor is a paid consultant for Abvi. My guest, Dr. Hugh Taylor, is a board-certified specialist in obstetrics and gynecology and in reproductive endocrinology. Dr. Taylor is the Anita O'Keefe Young Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences and Professor of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology at Yale School of Medicine. He's also the Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Yale New Haven Hospital. Welcome to Lady Parts. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, you know, we know that endometriosis affects 1 in 10 women, according to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists. Um, And so it's really common, but a lot of people have never heard of it. There's a little bit more awareness, but still not a lot. So give us a sense of how difficult it is to treat compared to other common chronic diseases. Well, um, it's not necessarily hard to treat. It's sometimes hard to identify, or at least is under-recognized. Uh, in reality, I don't think it's that hard to identify, but we don't. Uh, it takes an average of about 10 years from the time someone first has endometriosis-related pain till they get a definitive diagnosis and appropriate treatment. It is often either not recognized or misdiagnosed. But I think it's really fairly simple. If somebody has pelvic pain, often menstrual cramps that are getting worse and worse over time and get to the point where they're quite severe, that's not normal, and usually that's going to be endometriosis. So once you get that history of period pain getting worse and worse over time, interfering with daily activities, what is your your treatment protocol? What are kind of the steps, try this, maybe that doesn't work, then I try that? So first, I want to make sure it really is endometriosis and we're not missing something else. And there, there are other diseases we're looking at to rule out to make sure it's not. Usually, the first-line treatment for most people is a birth control pill. Uh, birth control pills work quite well for mild disease if we catch it early enough. They're easy and well-tolerated and inexpensive. Unfortunately, they don't always work. Some endometriosis is very aggressive and resistant to the hormones in birth control pills. Other times people have side effects from the birth control pills that sometimes mood changes, either depression or irritability can come from a birth control pill or uh, bloating or breast tenderness are common side effects that make those hard to tolerate. Some people feel that their endometriosis pain got better and tolerate some of those side effects, but they don't have to. There are other alternatives. Um, So if either it's not effective for 
endometriosis or if it's not tolerated well because of side effects, we can go on to other drugs after birth control pill. Um, if a birth control pill doesn't work, just switching from one to another is almost never effective. Uh, that the disease may be resistant to the hormones in those birth control pills. Sometimes that can help with side effects. Not always, but sometimes someone's side effects can be alleviated by switching from one pill to another. But if endometriosis is resistant to the hormones in birth control pills, switching from one to another isn't going to make the pain go away. I move on to another therapy after birth control pills. And what's that next step? So there, there are a few different options that I commonly use. Um, it, it really requires a discussion because here it's not always so simple. All of the second-line therapies have some side effects and pros and cons. So I think that's really something you want to individualize. In the old days, we would use sometimes uh, something called danazol, uh, which is a mild male-like hormone. It works fairly well to treat endometriosis but can cause hair growth, facial hair, or acne, and that's not very appealing to most patients. We, in the old days, would use Lupron quite a bit, which is a GnRH agonist that suppresses estrogen levels down in the menopause range, and we'd often give some hormones with that to help prevent those side effects. Wait, the old days meaning like up until... <laughs> Up until July, or, or have you stopped prescribing Lupron for a while? Because I just got a shot, you know, in December, and I know women are still being being prescribed it. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, recently it's all changed with this new medication coming out. So the old days, meaning, yes, just months ago, <laughs> things have changed as of the summer. Um, uh, Lupron is very effective, but again, it's an injectable it takes a little while to work. There's initially a couple weeks where the disease can actually get worse. It can have menopausal side effects, uh, needs to have some hormones given back with it, what we often call add-back hormone therapy, to alleviate the menopausal side effects. That can work quite well. It's very effective um, for the treatment of endometriosis. But now that we have this new drug out, we don't need to jump right to full suppression with an injectable drug to lower estrogen levels and control endometriosis. Now, uh, much more typically as my second line, I'm using the new uh, GnRH antagonist, or ELISA, that just came out this summer. Some doctors will, if, if a birth control doesn't work, uh, will try a laparoscopy. I mean, some patients would prefer a surgical approach and not have to take a daily medication. But surgery has risks, and surgery is never a permanent cure. Uh, endometriosis will tend to grow back after surgery unless someone's placed on a medication that will prevent it from coming back. My own preference is to catch it early where we can treat it easily with a simple medication. Try a medication. If it doesn't work, then consider surgery. But if we're going to have someone on a medication after surgery, why not just start with the medication and see if we can skip the surgery entirely? So the way I'm understanding Elagolus, it's like an alternative to Lupron, right? Yes, I, I, it's an alternative to Lupron, but it's a milder, gentler form. It's oral. It acts rapidly. You don't have that initial what we call flare effect where the disease can actually get worse before it gets better. It's fast acting and you can stop it and it clears your system within about 24 hours as well. So it's rapidly reversible. Um, and um, it's not all or nothing like Lupron. Lupron, you're either, it's either it's no effect or you put somebody in full-blown severe menopause. Here you can give a couple different doses to titrate just lower estrogen enough 
to slow down the endometriosis without putting somebody in full-blown severe menopause with all the side effects and consequences of that. So I've been on Lupron, and this is how, like, if I'm going to imagine, like, the body is an engine, and, like, this is how it sounds. So, like, your hormones are like, and then it gets ramps up, boom, 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 or Alyssa sound? Oh, boy. <laughs> you put me on the spot here. I mean, I, I think uh, uh, we'll be somewhere in between. And again, you can put your foot on the gas or take your foot off the accelerator. So you have complete control over that. You can rev it up as much as you need or slow it down as much as you need. So I think you could have a whole range in between those two extremes you just presented. But so the way that Lupron works, it, it overwhelms the hypothalamus, right? So like it kind of goes into overdrive and then it then it shuts down. Because Orlissa is an antagonist, it doesn't work. It has a different mechanism. It's yes. actually like suppressing. So this is my impression. Tell me if it's good. Okay. It's like... Those are two. We got more a gradual. Well, all right, let me do more gradual. It's like... You got to get at least two okay, different like, in between. Ooh, Okay, I like it. You yeah. like it? Okay, good. Lupron would be complete silence. Right, that's Except what I did. the brain starts screaming from the hot flushes without the hormones to calm that down. So you have to counter. The, the more the motor in your, in your model slows down, the more other things start to complain, and you have to really counterbalance the side effects. As I mentioned at the top, you were the lead author in this paper published in uh, NEGM last year on two phase three trials of this drug. And you had women taking 150 milligrams and another group taking 200 milligrams. I'm just going to jump in and correct myself here. That higher dose was actually 200 milligrams twice a day. The lower dose was 150 milligrams once a day. Um, and you were testing for reduction in pain both during menses and uh, not during menses. Yeah. And you'd reported a clinical meaningful result with about half of the women in the low dose and about three quarters of the women in the higher dose. But I was looking at the way that you had these women report. It was like a zero to three pain scale instead of the one to 10 that we're used to. So it was a little bit hard for me to suss out like just how well it worked. In order to enroll in this trial, we only took women who had uh, moderate to severe dysmenorrhea, so a two to three on that scale. In terms of dysmenorrhea, we saw about 75% at the higher dose respond by that definition. More that had some improvement in pain, but the ones that thought it was really a meaningful, significant reduction were about 75%. The average pain score on that scale was 2.2 at the start of the study, so between moderate to severe, a little over moderate. Um, it, it dropped by about two points. So when you're 2.2 to begin with on average and you drop on average almost two points, that's pretty good. You can't do much better than that. These two studies compared to these two doses of Orlissa to, to placebo. But how does Elagolix measure in pain reduction against Lupron and against um, some other treatments that doctors use for like long-term birth control like Depo-Provera or the Mirena IUD? There was no head-to-head -head comparison of Orlista to any of those drugs. So it's really hard to say because there are different ways. You know, these were patients with fairly severe pain that may not have responded to some of those milder drugs. So it's, it's hard to say. But in general uh, terms, if somebody uh, finds that they get pain relief on an oral contraceptive, that's great. They don't need to think about something like that. Many women get complete pain relief 
on an oral contraceptive. But for those who don't, this is a better drug. That's why I'd use this as a second-line drug. Some of the women in these clinical trials did report menopause-like side effects. So I asked Dr. Taylor, is Oralissa more tolerable than Lupron? Anytime we lower estrogen to treat endometriosis, that's a risk. Typically, hot flashes, night sweats, um, and many women had them in this trial, but they were very mild, much, much lower than we used to see with drugs like Lupron, where there are huge incidents of side effects, and many people wanted off the drug. And so here, the side effects were much milder. If they had hot flushes, they tended to be mild rather than the severe ones you'd get uh, with the old-fashioned uh, drugs like Lupron. And although this wasn't tested in these studies with ADVAC hormone therapy, if somebody has significant side effects with Alyssa, I would still use uh, some ADVAC therapy to eliminate those side effects. But you'll find that many people don't even need that on this drug, especially at the lower dose. This clinical trial was done over the course of six months, and, and then I, I know it was extended. So I'm wondering, um, now that it's approved, are there studies to, the, that are going to be tracking women over the period of years? Because, you know, there are things like bone density loss that you've seen with Lupron, and, and you know, people would like to know what's going to happen down the line. Already we've seen the one-year results, which it tracks bone density. At the 150, it's, you know, far less than 1% bone loss, very mild, and that's without ADBAC. With ADBAC, um, you wouldn't expect that. It's not enough that you couldn't regrow that very quickly off the medication. Um, at the higher dose, it was a couple percent, a prolonged use of the high dose beyond six months. There may be some permanent bone loss. Of course, there are registries. These patients are being followed on drug, and we'll have some longer-term data eventually. So I've heard it said by doctors and patients that Lupron is a Band-Aid, meaning it's tamping down the symptoms for a while while you're on it, but it doesn't actually shrink endo lesions because it's been found that endometriosis tissue produces its own estrogen. So when the patient comes off Lupron and the estrogen returns, the pain returns. It may not be immediately. It might be in a year or two. Now, I thought it was interesting that Oralissa was approved by the FDA for the management of pain associated with endometriosis and not for actually treating endometriosis. So is Oralissa a Band-Aid? Unfortunately, there is no cure for endometriosis. So everything in some sense is a Band-Aid. Any medication uh, that lowers estrogen stops them from growing, and over long term they can start to atrophy, whether it's a birth control pill, whether it's Danazol, whether it's Orlissa, whether it's Lupron, none of them are a complete cure. This disease will be active, and when you go off the medication, the lesions will start to grow back. Even surgery, we can cut out all the visible lesions, but there are undoubtedly some microscopic lesions that we don't see that will continue to grow over time. And anything short of a hysterectomy, there will still be more endometrium that seeds into the abdomen and continues to grow endometriosis. So other than menopause, when estrogen levels are gone permanently, there really is no cure for endometriosis. I think it's a chronic disease that we need to manage throughout the reproductive years. A couple of years ago, Dr. Taylor was interviewed for a documentary called Endo-What? I played him back a clip from one of his parts in the film. What I think we really need are drugs that attack some of these molecular pathways that aren't hormone-suppressing drugs, uh, that aren't just with a broad brush trying to stop every reproductive function. 
All of our treatments now essentially work by blocking estrogen, which stimulates the growth of the endometrium, or by giving more progesterone, which stops it from growing. Um, they have side effects. Women are supposed to have estrogen. You feel menopausal if you block it. Uh, too much progesterone. Progesterone is the hormone that leads to PMS. Essentially, you give a lot of that, and some women you're gonna get PMS-like symptoms. We need non-hormonal treatments, treatments that are specifically targeted to endometriosis. I felt like there was some cognitive dissonance between what Dr. Taylor was saying to me sitting in his office and what he said in that clip, but he saw things differently. We sure do need non-hormonal treatments as well, but we just don't have them yet. Uh, the idea here is we're giving something that's much gentler that can just lower estrogen levels uh, to a milder degree than the drugs we used to use like Lupron. So this is a big step in the right direction. It works really well. We don't have those non-hormonals available yet. I'm working in my laboratory. We're testing those today down the hall in mice. We've got some non-hormonal treatments that work really well in mice and I hope to bring them to human trials in the near future. But this is the best we have right now. Can you tell me a little bit about the, those treatments that you're working on down the hall? Well, some of them are, we found that um, uh, some of the molecular uh, derangements in endometriosis, some of the things other than just hormones that make those cells behave differently. Uh, one of them is something called a microRNA. It's a small uh, RNA molecule that uh, is uh, found even in the circulation in women in endometriosis. It gets in the cell and it turns genes on or off, and we're working on ways to block that, specifically block the alterations that we see in endometriosis without changing hormone levels. If we block that in the mouse, we can make the endometriosis uh, go away or significantly shrink without order altering hormone levels. So I think that's the future. If we can have normal hormone levels and uh, not interfere with fertility, that'd be ideal, but we're not there yet. You know, um, there there's a lot of skepticism about about Oralissa on the online endometriosis communities that I'm a part of, partially because it is, you know, in the same class as Lupron. And then the other part is that this this trial that was uh, fundamental to its approval was funded by AbbVie, and a lot of the uh, people involved in the study work for for AbbVie Pharmaceuticals. You know, why should why should endometriosis patients trust a drug when the study was funded by the company that makes it? And, and for that matter, why should they trust you? Yeah. Well, I, and uh, that's the way, I mean, uh, all new drugs are brought to market. The cost of developing the drug and the studies are typically conducted by the company that makes the drug. As we have the drug on the market now, you'll see other people independently using this drug in uh, studies that are separate from AbbVie. So we'll have a much wider experience and a broad number of investigators and companies all uh, producing these types of drugs. And we'll see a lot more data on this uh, in the next few years. The report from those Oralissa trials was published in the New England Journal of Medicine last year, and I've linked to it in the show notes. A couple of things I want to note here. Dr. Taylor said that endometriosis can be cured by a hysterectomy. That's based on the belief that the disease comes from menstrual blood leaking out of the fallopian tubes and implanting in the pelvis, a theory called retrograde menstruation. He also believes that endometriosis can be effectively treated in many cases with medication and not surgery. 
I mention these two things here because there is not a consensus on either point, and my next guest will completely disagree with both ideas. As it happens, Dr. Taylor said the most interesting thing after I turned off the recorder. He said the thing he's most excited about when it comes to Oralissa is not the drug itself, but the marketing campaign around it. He said, and this is a direct quote, Oralissa is going to do for endometriosis what Viagra did for erectile dysfunction. Two, three, four. Got me a honey, gonna set my soul. about Viagra, America's most prescribed treatment for erectile dysfunction. Learn more at Viagra. So yeah, Dr. Taylor says he's hoping pharmaceutical advertising gets patients in the door to talk to their doctors about endometriosis and that AbbVie Pharma reps help educate OBGYNs about the disease. And if those new patients don't end up taking Oralissa, no problem. It's all for the good. Avi has actually been running ads on TV and social media that play like PSAs and don't specifically mention any drugs. I'm going to play you one that I first saw on daytime TV back in January. This scene is in a doctor's office. You first hear the voice of the doctor, then the patient, a young woman sitting on the exam table in a gown. The third voice is the same young woman in her street clothes. She's representing the patient's inner monologue. What seems to be the problem? Just some cramps. Hold on! Uh, say it's like stabbing knives. Sometimes I have to call in sick. Any pelvic pain? Kinda. Kinda. Say it's like something's hammering at my uterus, even when it's not my period. Pain with sex? Speak up! Actually, it's all terrible. If you have painful periods, pelvic pain in between periods, or pain with sex, ask your gynecologist if it could be endometriosis. One in ten women have it, yet many don't know it. Learn more at speakendo.com. I have to say, when I saw that ad, I was really encouraged to see anything out there on TV about endometriosis. Of course, not realizing that it was a pharmaceutical ad. Call me a socialist, but I think the idea that we're relying on pharmaceutical companies to educate patients and doctors about a really common and awful disease is pretty sad. On the other hand, everyone remembers those Viagra ads, so maybe Dr. Taylor has a point. My next guest is an outspoken critic of Oralissa and has been sounding the alarm about Lupron for many years. Dr. David Redwine is the founder of the Oregon Institute of Endometriosis at St. Charles Medical Center in Bend, Oregon. He's a pioneer in the surgical treatment of the disease, specifically laparoscopic excision, the technique where tissue is cut or excised from the body. The one endometriosis surgery that helped Caitlin, remember Caitlin, was done using this method. Dr. Redwine has published over 100 articles and four books on endometriosis, lectured, and performed surgeries around the world. He's now retired, though he still reviews the latest research and gives lectures from time to time. I reached him at his home in Chandler, Arizona. During this interview, you'll hear him use the word dyspareunia. That's a scientific word for painful intercourse. 
I watched a video where you were receiving an award for your work in the field of endometriosis back in 2011. And you said that you got interested in the disease because your first wife had it and you got really pissed off about the lack of understanding of the disease. So that was over 35 years ago. Are you still pissed off? Yes, although less and less so. The uh, the landscape has improved quite a bit. Now there are more and more people excising uh, endometriosis and, and doing very good jobs all around the world. So in, in that sense, I helped plant the seed that is growing into a full tree you know, these days. So I feel very good about that. The other thing that is uh, also happening, though, is that Big Pharma is taking more and more control of the science of publications. What is the origin of endometriosis? Where does it come from? Well, I and several other people uh, who I've been in correspondence with think that it has an embryonic origin, which ultimately means that it has a genetic cause because the embryo just forms the way the genes tell it to form. And so women with endometriosis, or men, because men can develop it also, uh, the person who's going to be developing endometriosis has a certain set of genes. And we don't know what all those genes may be. And there are many, many genes, and there are many interactions among the genes and with other genes, and it just gets very fuzzy. It's estimated that maybe 5 to 10% of all the genetics of endometriosis have been worked out. And until we get a genetic treatment, we're going to be stuck in, in, kind of in a holding pattern with hormonal therapies based on the twin never proven notions that pregnancy and menopause make the uh, endometriosis go away uh, or some kind of surgery. Virtually any form of endometriosis anywhere has an operation that has already been done for it successfully laparoscopically. Okay, what happens if you excise all the endometriosis? Well, we know what happens because there have been five or six different studies that have come out looking at the follow-up of endometriosis uh, after laparoscopic excision. And there have been six or seven papers and the cure rates as documented by reoperating on women, looking in to see if they have endometriosis or not. Uh, the cure rate in each of these uh, articles was over 50%. Dr. Redwine explained to me that endometriosis typically spreads in predictable patterns in the pelvis. When he performs excision surgery, he removes not only endometriosis, but also pattern tracks where the disease has the potential to form later on. So the, the patterns help you remove all the disease and all the areas where disease might occur, and since it was laid down embryologically and it's not something that comes out of the fallopian tubes each month because nobody's ever proved that, uh, once you remove these pattern tracks, that's it. You know, that woman can be cured of her endometriosis. And the studies all bear that out with their cure rates documented at reoperation. Therefore, the, the correct approach to you know, kind of having a conversation about what about other kinds of therapy compared to excision, you got to understand the raw facts about excision. It is the only form of treatment of endometriosis that has ever been proven scientifically to cure the disease by repeated studies in dozens, if not now hundreds of patients. 
This episode is about this new drug, Oralissa. But before we even get there, I just wanted to talk about its predecessor, Lupron. And if you could touch a little bit about your review of those studies that you submitted to the FDA, why do you think Lupron should never have been approved to treat endometriosis in the first place? During treatment, uh, 54% of the patients taking Lupron required narcotics. And uh, which was similar to 46% requiring narcotics in another study. And then after treatment, 50% of the, the patients still required narcotics after treatment. So the majority of patients reported a return of symptoms to baseline at six months after stopping the medicine or later. That's a very short time interval for you know, return of symptoms after undergoing all this uh, medication and having to take narcotics during, you know, the medication. Yeah, I've, I've taken Lupron and it was the worst. So we have this new drug that doctors are saying, now you don't have to go through this, um, you know, Lupron hell or whatever. We have Oralissa, but you've pointed out some flaws with the data in the phase three trials or, or just you're, you're unimpressed. Yeah. The first thing I want to notice is that there are 22 authors and eight of the authors are employees or ex-employees of uh, AbbV with stock or stock options. Uh, one of the first things that you notice is that there were uh, about 20 to 25% dropouts across all groups. And the reason for dropouts, uh, some were related to adverse events. Adverse events range between about 5 and 10% across, you know, the various placebo groups and Oralissa uh, dose groups. Um, but premature discontinuations, dropouts of between 21 and 27%, that's, that's pretty huge when you're following people for only six months. Some of the other reasons beyond adverse events, there's this curious thing called withdrew consent between um, oh, about 7 and 10% of patients with, quote, withdrew consent. Well, why did they withdraw consent? Well, because they weren't doing well on the drug and they didn't want to participate. Okay, well, then, you know, why wouldn't that be just called a drug failure instead of hiding it behind withdrew consent? The New England Journal article had pretty graphs in there of response of these two symptoms, uh, dysmenorrhea and non-menstrual pelvic pain. So when you take out 25% dropout rate, and when you take off a few percent for uh, ad, you know, withdrawal because of adverse events, and then you take off a few more percent for uh, whatever reason it, it may be, and when you combine the groups, here's what the numbers are. For Elagalix, 150 milligrams once daily, looking at dysmenorrhea, only 23% of patients who begin the medicine will respond. For the 200 milligrams twice daily dose, 47% will respond, 53% will not. For non-menstrual pelvic pain at the 150 milligrams dose, the response rate of women who start the drug is 12.5%. The response rate of women who start the 200 milligram twice daily is 18%. So looking at it the other way, you know, kind of subtracting from 100, there's like between a 53 and 87% chance that somebody is not going to respond for dysmenorrhea 
and there's a uh, over an 80% chance, uh, well, around an uh, 80 to 85% chance that they will not respond for non-menstrual pelvic pain. So it's like the odds of somebody responding to this medicine are so low by the company's own figures published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Why would anybody think that this is hitting a home run? This is no, this is certainly not as effective as Lupron, even though it's short-lived and it doesn't have the side effects of Lupron. But it seems less effective than birth control pills. It seems less effective than uh, just treating somebody with norethindrone. Oralissa seems better than nothing for three things. Dysmenorrhea and non-menstrual pelvic pain and 150 milligram a day dose for up to two years. If somebody has dyspareunia, then give them 200 milligrams twice daily for six months. But most women will not respond. So, um, you know, and, and you can get a response of dysmenorrhea to cyclic or perhaps better with continuous low-dose birth control pills. You can get uh, relief with norethindrone. The same thing with non-menstrual pelvic pain. You can get some relief with birth control pills. You can get some relief with norethindrone. There are cheaper medicines out there. So there's relief and then there's long-term actually treating the disease. And we don't really know yet with Oralissa because I think the longest it's been studied was 12 months. Based on what you know about Oralissa and what you know about Lupron, do you think that this method of estrogen suppression, this GnRH pathway, can this, would this ever be a long-term solution for an endometriosis patient? Well, you know, I'm sure that uh, the manufacturer would like it to be a long-term uh, solution, but at the start, you have to provide informed consent to the patient and the, the pros and cons of the medicine versus pros and cons of alternatives. And although I'm not in practice, I would say to somebody, well, you know, you got medical versus surgical possibilities. Uh, medical, uh, this new Oralissa stuff came out, in my opinion, it looks like it's no better than and maybe a little bit worse than birth control pills. It's less effective, but much safer than Lupron. Uh, but it's extremely expensive compared to uh, having somebody on birth control pills. You know, yes, you might have some side effects and some bone loss. And within a few months after stopping the medicine, you're going to be having pain again because it doesn't do anything to the disease. Versus, we can send you over here to, you know, Dr. Smith, who uh, excises endometriosis, and you have a 60% chance of being cured with one surgery, not having to take any medicine for endometriosis ever, although it costs, you know, thousands of dollars and it has risks. So, so that's, that's kind of the question. How many patients will choose between something that is curative because of the way the disease behaves and it was laid down embryologically, curative but risky to a certain extent. S serious complications, fortunately, in experienced hands are uncommon. They're less than 2% versus something that is very low risk, or Alyssa or birth control pills or whatever, um, but which isn't treating the disease. It's just trying to reduce symptoms. So what will it be, Mrs. Mrs. Jones, 
medicine or surgery. Dr. Redwine brought up patient costs and healthcare is expensive AF, so let's get into it. As he mentioned, some forms of hormonal birth control are just as effective as Oralissa and much cheaper. In fact, for the majority of Americans with insurance, birth control is free. Pills, implants, shots, the IUD, you name it. Thanks, Obama. But as we discussed before, birth control doesn't work for everyone with endometriosis. As for surgery, it can be heartbreakingly hard to get it done right. The vast majority of doctors performing endometriosis surgery are OBGYNs with inadequate training. The lesions are usually removed by burning or vaporization, methods that leave tissue behind with the potential to grow back. That's why women like Caitlin McDonough have had surgery after surgery. Patient advocates say the best surgical option is excision with an endometriosis specialist. But those doctors are few, and many are out of network on all insurance plans. They can run you hundreds of dollars for a consultation and potentially tens of thousands for the procedure. And I'm not blaming the doctors. The system does not work in their favor, and that's why they don't take insurance. As I mentioned at the top, Oralissa is listed at about $1,000 a month for the lower dose. The company provides a discount card that can bring the cost down to $845. However, out-of-pocket costs for drugs vary widely. That's the way our crazy system works. As of this recording, major insurers don't cover Oralissa. AbbVie does have a program for patients with financial difficulties where you can apply to get the medicine for free. You have to include proof of your income and medical expenses. Of course, just because you can get something for free doesn't mean it's a good idea or that it's cost-effective in the long run. Oralissa was evaluated by the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or ICER, a nonprofit watchdog that assesses the clinical and economic value of new prescription drugs in the U.S. The analysis was conducted by a group of physicians, pharmacists, nurses, economists, public health experts, patient advocates, and others, and their conclusions were not great for the makers of Oralissa. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from the report. On clinical effectiveness, they wrote, Evidence on elagolics compared to no treatment was promising but inconclusive. While important clinical benefits and pain reduction were observed, potentially serious adverse events such as increased bone mineral density loss and changes in cholesterol levels have not been fully evaluated. The FDA prescribing information also highlighted warnings about elevated liver function tests, suicidal ideation, and reduced ability to recognize pregnancy. Therefore, the possibility of net harm cannot be ruled out. Evidence and elagolics compared to GnRH agonists, that means Lupron and other drugs like it, hormonal contraceptives and aromatase inhibitors was insufficient to judge the net health benefit. As for cost, not great either. ICER issued what they call an access and affordability alert, and here's how they explain that. 
ICER's Access and Affordability Alert is intended to provide a signal to manufacturers, insurers, patient groups, and other stakeholders when the amount of added healthcare costs associated with these new treatments may be difficult for the healthcare system to absorb over the short term without displacing other needed services or contributing to rapid growth in healthcare insurance costs that threaten sustainable access to high value care for all patients. I've also linked to the ISA report in the show notes. So if you're considering Orelissa or any other drug, please do your own research and be your own advocate. And if your doctor is pushing only one solution, find another provider. The private Facebook group Endometropolis is an incredible resource. You can find me on there, Caitlin McDonough's on there, Dr. Redwine and other endometriosis specialists chime in on a regular basis and they answer questions. If you want to get in touch with me, I have plenty of personal experience and opinions that didn't make it into this episode. You can find me on Twitter at Andrea underscore Maraskin, and I'll be getting into some of that in future episodes. You can also email me at ladypartsradio at gmail.com. Lady Parts was produced by me, Andrea Maraskin. I had editing help from Jen Stanley. Special thanks to Casey Berna of endowhat.org. The Lady Parts logo is by Jamie Squire, and our theme song is by Adam Bragusia. We'll have a new episode the third Sunday of every month. Next month, we're going to get real earthy and talk about conscious menstruation. Please subscribe, and it would be really awesome if you could review or rate the show on Apple Podcasts. If you don't have an iPhone, you can use the iTunes desktop app. It's the same thing. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>